0: speeding bullets more powerful than a locomotive able to leap tall buildings at a single bound look up in the sky it's a bird it's a plane it's superman yes it's superman strange visitor from another planet who came to earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men all right, we are back in our final segment. I guess before we talk about some obituaries, which we need to do, I need to backtrack here a moment into the crazy world of lawbreaking and the, the sometimes crazy world of law enforcement. Because apparently—actually, I don't even know how to frame this. Let me just let me just read what's written here. Starting with a blurb in The Week magazine. An amateur superhero was arrested for assault last week after allegedly pepper-sprayed a group of people outside a nightclub. Self-styled vigilante Benjamin Fodor, who goes by the name Phoenix Jones, claims he was breaking up a fight, but Seattle police say Fodor started the scuffle. A mixed martial arts fighter, Fodor is a member of the Rain County Superhero Movement, a group of masked crime fighters who patrol the streets at night like comic book characters. Seattle police have warned the costumed crusaders to dial 911 rather than take matters into their own hands said to Seattle Police Chief Mark Jamison, it's fine if people want to dress up and walk around. But if you're deploying pepper spray on people in the street, you have to have a good reason to do so, or you will be arrested. A rather lengthier piece in the Sacramento Bee coming off the AP, Gene Johnson and Manuel Valdez, in referring to Benjamin Fodor, a.k.a. Phoenix Jones, described Jones' action where he shows up in a black mask and matching muscle suit to pepper spray people. In one instance, perhaps appropriately, in the other, perhaps not so much. But notes the article. The comic book-inspired patrolling of city streets by real-life superheroes has been getting more popular in recent years thanks to mainstream attention in movies like the recent HBO documentary, Superheroes. And as the ranks of the masked, caped, and sometimes bulletproof vest Avengers swell... Many fret that even well-intentioned vigilantes risk hurting themselves, the public, and the movement if they're as aggressive as the crime fighter in Seattle. Some go so far as to propose a sanctioning body to ensure that high superhero standards are maintained. The article quotes Edward Stinson, a writer from Baton Roca, Florida, who said the movement has grown majorly. Apparently he advises real-life superheroes on a website dedicated to the cause. What I tell these guys is, you're no longer in the shadows. You're in a new era. Build trust. Set standards. Make the real-life superheroes work to earn that title. And take some kind of oath. And take some kind of oath? We have an additional suggestion for these people. Get a life! The article says, It's not clear how many costumed vigilantes there are in the United States. The website, www.reallifesuperheroes.org, lists 660 members from around the world. And the article notes that filmmaker Michael Barnett followed 50, 5 real-life crime fighters for 15 months for his documentary, Superheroes. Many have great intentions, he said, but that doesn't mean their methods are proper. The police, by and large, appreciate an extra set of eyes, but they really, really want these guys to do it according to the law. Apparently, mass crusaders began appearing in the 1970s with San Diego's Captain Sticky, who used his Superman-like costume to fight against rental car ripoffs and for tenant rights. Barnett said he met plumbers, teachers, cashiers, and firefighters who leave their day jobs behind every night in the name of security. Their weapons include pepper spray, stun guns, and batons. Few have any combat training or any formal knowledge of how to use their arsenal, he said. The article adds that concerns the professional crime fighters. Wow. Let's do some obituaries. Actually, before I do that, I just have to mention one final thing about this cockamamie story involving uh, involving Iran arranging for an assassination. It's a picture in the B from October 12th showing Eric Holder with F.D.I. director Robert Mueller right behind him, looking very stern and serious as they're talking about. This plot to kill the Saudi ambassador to the United States, directed and approved by elements of the Iranian government, and specifically senior members of the Quds Force. Anyway, I guess one-upping these two boneheads from the federal government was the reaction by Iran, which which rejected the claims as, quote, a conspiracy, unquote. I think they meant to say conspiracy theory. Because after all, once you've labeled something a conspiracy theory, you've completely discredited it, right? let's talk about three Californians who passed away. First off, Steve Jobs. I don't have too much to say about Steve Jobs because, well, this is just not the setting. And his passing's been pretty well documented elsewhere. Just two things about him I thought were interesting. First, that he's half Syrian. Although he was, uh, he was given up for adoption as a small infant, his father was Syrian. Now, let's face it, we don't hear enough about Syrian Americans Second thing was, in, his, in some of his obituaries, they noted that the Jobs once said that taking LSD during the 1970s is one of the two or three most important things he'd done in his life. And Sometime next month or in December, we're going to talk to some uh, people who are very up on the subject of psychedelic medications and how they might uh, be making a comeback in certain settings for people to use uh, in psychiatry and elsewhere. The second guy I want to talk about is Al Davis of the Raiders. But you know what? I also want to talk about Norman Corwin. So let's put off Big Bad Al for next week's program and instead focus in on radio's poet laureate. To quote from the obituary in the L.A. Times by Dennis McClellan, Norman Corwin, the legendary writer, director, and producer of original radio plays for CBS during the golden age of radio in the 1930s and 40s when he was revered as the poet of the airwaves, has died. He was 101. Corwin, a journalist, playwright, author, and the Oscar-nominated screenwriter who was inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame in 1993, died Tuesday in his home in Los Angeles. With his often poetic words, Corwin moved and entertained a generation of listeners tuned into the CBS radio network during the late 30s and 40s with landmark broadcasts ranging from celebrations of the Bill of Rights and Allied victory in Europe to a light-hearted rhyming play about a demonic plot to overthrow Christmas. Corwin's programs, which CBS aired without sponsors, are considered classics of the era when radio was the primary news and entertainment venue for Americans. Said Ray Bradbury, there was no one like him. He dominated the field. Corwin was highly esteemed by the celebrated actors of his era who appeared in his radio programs. Said the legendary Charles Lawton, there's not an actor who will not drop what he was doing to be in one of Norman Corwin's radio shows. We all look up to him as a writer of the greatest importance. TV producer Norman Lear, in comments written to honor Corwin on his 75th birthday, said Corwin illuminated the moral landscape with his broadcasts, drawing upon his skills as a reporter, writer, poet, scriptwriter, director, and producer. CBS, to its lasting credit, gave Corwin the latitude to experiment and follow his impulses. Corwin's most celebrated programs were two specials that aired at the beginning and near the end of World War II. We Hold These Truths was a government-sponsored drama he was asked to write in 1941 to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the Bill of Rights. The drama featured a star-studded cast led by Jimmy Stewart. Among the other cast members were Orson Welles, Lionel Barrymore, Walter Brennan, Edward G. Robinson, Walter Houston, Marjorie Main, and Rudy Vallee. Broadcast live from the CBS studios in Hollywood and featuring music composed and conducted by CBS's Bernard Herrmann, The program ended with a live eight-minute speech by President Franklin Roosevelt at the White House, then switched to New York, where the NBC Symphony Orchestra played the national anthem under the direction of Leopold Stokowski. The program was scheduled to air simultaneously on all four national networks on December 15, 1941, and when it did, only eight days after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, 60 million Americans tuned in. Three and a half years later, on May 8, 1945, Corwin marked the Allied victory in Europe with another top-rated program he'd been asked to write. On a note of triumph, is considered by many to be Corwin's finest hour. Poet Carl Sandberg called it one of the all-time great American poems. Well, if you've been listening to this program over the past few years, and we certainly hope you have, you know that we've sort of weaved Norman Corwin into numerous programs that we've done. Starting back in 2005, when yours truly traveled down to Beverly Hills, where an event honoring Corwin was to be held at the Museum of TV and Radio, which I think has now been renamed the Paley Center. A bunch of actors got together to uh, perform some of Corwin's writings and to honor the man on his 95th birthday. I feel fortunate that I had some idea who Corwin was, having read Gerald Nachman's excellent book, Raised on Radio. That event and some subsequent trips down to Los Angeles to see some other uh, works of Corwin uh, being performed led us to have, uh, either on this program or, or uh, on Inside Over at Capital Public Radio, Norman Lear, actor and comedian Phil Proctor, Ray Bradbury, and this year, the actor Norman Lloyd. That's, of course, in addition to Mr. Corwin himself. It took us about a year to arrange that interview with, uh, with Norman Corwin, which makes a person a bit nervous when the subject is 95, I have to admit. But arrange it, we finally did. We traveled down to his home and conducted an interview, which is available on our archives at radioparallax.com. I did go back and visit Mr. Corwin a second time, the day, after, the day we interviewed Ray Bradbury. The two men had been friends since the 1940s. And when we told Ray Bradbury that we were going to leave his house and go over to visit Mr. Corwin and give him uh, CDs of the show that, that we'd done with him, and also so the program we did with an actor he liked to employ, Phil Proctor, Mr. Bradbury said, oh, tell Norman I love him proceeded to uh, wax eloquently about how much he felt he owed Norman Corwin when, as a young writer, Corwin took him out to dinner one night and talked about things. We did drive across L.A. and relay the message to Norman Corwin, who said, Ray keeps mentioning that dinner. I'm getting mileage out of that thing for like 60 years. But uh, I really can't tell you how much I delight, as a radio host, to have had the opportunity to speak to Ray Bradbury and Norman Corwin on the same day, and then be able to bring people like Norman Lloyd on this show because uh, we got a couple shots at Mr. Lloyd in Los Angeles. Most recently when they performed, Norman Corwin's The Undecided Molecule, and this was first done back in the 1940s with Groucho Marx in the lead role. Norman Corwin had the uh, Norman Lloyd, the second most important uh, role in the production, and he did so again with our pal Phil Proctor, this time in the lead. So we're going to have to bring Phil back on the show uh, next week or the week after to talk about uh, his great respect and admiration for Mr. Norman Corwin. When we interviewed him, he asked something about uh, the the Oscar, and I wasn't sure what he was talking about, and he said, well, a documentary about me is up for the short feature uh, Oscar next week. And I said, oh. I didn't know that. (laughs) When he looked somewhat astonished, I just said, well, I'm here to interview you because you're Norman Corwin. When he realized I didn't really know anything about the Oscar, I think he was pleased. By the way, that short documentary, A Note of Triumph, The Golden Age of Norman Corwin, did win the Academy Award a week later. He was a towering figure in the history of radio, and we lament his passing, but we're enormously pleased to have had the opportunity to sit down and chat with him about his remarkable career. Which, again, I hope you will check out on our archives at radioparallax.com. Our thanks to Nancy Yamada and Will Durst, both of whom we will be hearing more from in the future. We'll be talking on next week's program about, about some of America's great newspaper columnists and some of their finest columns with John Avalon, senior columnist for Newsweek. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time.